0: Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 103.9 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here, but much more important, one of the founding members of POCO is our very special guest, and he's a legend on pedal steel and just in general. Rusty Young, thrilled to have you. How are you?
1: I'm good. It's good to be a general legend, you know, because, you know, that works at at Walmart especially. It works when you get in line and say... (laughs) excuse me i'm a legend so yeah
0: you know i have to believe you're what some people would call jazz famous in other words people know you people know your music but you can have a normal life uh even though you've sold millions of records and everything else uh you you get by without getting bothered all that much is that true
1: yeah yeah frank yeah that's it's uh we lead a normal life here in missouri out in the archway national forest and uh you know, i just go do my work and we've got great fans or, or poco nuts as we call them who uh, have supported us for the last 50 years and uh, so yeah it's good life is good
0: yeah well th- think about that what you just said 50 years people supporting you for 50 years i mean uh, most bands don't last and, and again not that it's a straight run nothing's ever a straight run but i uh, imagine that imagine when you started poco Fifty years ago, that uh, that you'd still be talking about the same band, you'd still be talking about the success and 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 playing to some of the same fans and a lot of new fans that you picked up along the way. Uh, would you ever have thought that? No,
1: that it's really amazing. And you know, I just uh, this last Friday night, I played with, uh, I sat in with Jimmy Nasina and we were talking about that. You know, if you look back, actually, on my new album, uh, "Waiting for the Sun," there's a song called "My Friends." or my friend, Uh, and that's exactly what it's about, is thinking about us 50 years ago, you know, in the valley in Los Angeles, and we had this kind of idea for a a new music, which was rock and roll, but with country instruments as the color, and, you know, that was our goal, and we we were all basically really poor. We lived off of ham sandwiches we sold from the Troubadour when we were rehearsing, (laughs) and, uh, you know, and here we are today, you know, and everyone's been so successful. And just, you know, just to be able to do what you love for 50 years, to, to play music for 50 years at the level that we're at, um, you know, it's such a blessing that, you know, we're, we're frankly, we're, hey, frankly, Frank, yeah. we're all, uh, you know, really lucky and, and you know, blessed to, to be where we're at.
0: Well, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of a history lesson and let's start with you. Uh, where were you born? Where were you raised?
1: Well, I, I was actually born in California, but my parents, it was right after World War II, and my parents moved uh, very quickly to Colorado, where I grew up, because that was where my father was from. And uh, I, I grew up in Colorado, and uh, I was around my, my grandmother. My grandfather and, and grandmother were musicians, and my, my grandmother is this little red-headed, cute little red-headed lady who, in the 20s and 30s, played piano at the silent movies at the theater, and when the silent movie was playing, she would play piano along and just, you know, like watch what was going on. If it was on the railroad track, she'd go, you know, or if it was a romantic scene she had. So she was really creating music at the time. And I think she passed that on to me, my ability to uh, to create music. So, uh, you know, it was a great time growing up in Colorado.
0: Well, something interesting about what you just said there. I mean, as a uh, there's a lost art that's almost like uh, doing the soundtrack on the run, and I mean I don't think we'll ever see that unless it's a it's a novelty place where somebody's actually playing piano along with the uh, with the film. I mean that's a that's an amazing um, situation, and I, I'll tell you what a very difficult. A uh, thing for a musician to do, I would imagine. I mean, it, it, did you ever talk to her about that? Was this something she enjoyed doing? Was it something she just did for extra bucks, or what? What did your uh, what was her take on on playing music to a uh, silent film?
1: Well, you know, I think she enjoyed it. You know, because this the solitude, you know, of a dark theater and being able to sit behind the piano and create. And, you know, it turns out that I did the exact, well, not the exact same thing, but I did a lot of the same thing because, I, actually, I did the soundtrack. That a, a guy called me in in L.A., and it was a, a short, they, you know, like a three-minute short that they would play before movies. And it was of a rodeo, and he said, I just want you to play steel guitar, play along with this guy on a, on a horse who's going to get bucked off and just, you know, play what you feel as the whole thing is going along. And I did that, and it actually won an Academy Award for a short. And uh, so that was very much like my grandmother would do in the movie. So, you know, it went all the way down the line to me.
0: Now, did you get the Academy Award, or did the film get the Academy Award? What happens with that? Do you get a replica of that for your work on that, on the short?
1: No, I don't even get a phone call. The producer... That produced this session, that sat there chewing on a pencil while I created the music. He got the uh, the Academy Award.
0: Yeah, and what what was the Academy Award for? Uh, it, it, I missed it. Now, what, uh, is it for? The music in a short.
1: Yes, music in a short. Wow, you that was be- way back in the early seventies.
0: Yeah, but you got to be kidding. How do you not get? I mean, if I'm you, I I just go out and make an Academy Award and put it up on my uh, on my shelf. I mean, that's. Uh, yeah that's a, that's a bit of a ripoff and the fact that he didn't even give you you know a uh, an acknowledgement did he thank you? Did you Is that the type of thing the music in a short that you go up there and you accept and you you uh, you make a little speech or is it something that's given to you or mailed to you? Uh, what's the deal on getting an academy award on a music short?
1: I, I, I have no idea. I have no idea at all. Let's see. he didn't even call and say, hey, guess what um, I found out through other uh, sources. But, uh, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff happens in the music business every day. So, you know, I'm just happy that uh, that uh, that it did, you know, my work did that. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, curse be on him. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Let me remind folks, if they're just tuning in or turning on their radios now, Frank McKay here, but much more importantly, from Poco and, and so much more. Rusty Young is our very special guest and, and uh, pedal steel guitar. Is something that he knows very well and uh, you know I was gonna say it's a lost art but it's still there. you hear it in country music um, I don't know how many uh, bands started using it in rock but it was uh, definitely after you guys initiated it what kind of response did you get right away uh, by putting the country instruments into uh, into rock songs was it accepted because of the time period um, was it criticized what kind of take did you get from the critics
1: well, no, it was, a, it was a new thing back in, you know, late 60s, early 70s. And uh, everyone loved it. And jumped, well, you know, um, the, the critics, you know, said the Poco was going to be the next big thing. And, uh, you know, everyone jumped on the band, bandwagon. That, you know, after that came the, the Eagles and Pure Prairie League and the Burrito Brothers and Dillard and Clark and all these other bands that were doing the same basic thing. And uh, so it was, we just kind of started a trend. And uh, which is,
0: you know, very cool. Yeah, it is. And, you know, another thing that is cool is, is if you look at the tree of Poco, uh, you know, I, I know I had uh, Richie Foray on and uh, you know I've had him on a couple of times actually and it's I, I, I said the same thing to him there is a, is a unique tree and of course you see Timothy uh, B. Schmidt went to the Eagles and Jim Messina and everything he did and everything you did if you did the six degrees of poco uh, it would spread out pretty pretty far and um, I, I don't know if that's uh, that's uh, that's worth doing one day for uh, for a project but I mean if you think about it if you think about it, there's very few bands of that time period that that's anywhere near the genre that you were doing that you guys haven't touched in one way or the other. Uh, when was the first time that you guys realized hey, this is going to be impactful, that not only is it going to be successful, but it's uh, it's going to be a, a band that has has some impact on uh, on, on the you know, little music society around you guys.
1: Well, you know, way back in the late 60s, uh, early 70s, we played a club in, in Los Angeles called the Troubadour. And that was really the, the key place in in the city, in the state, in the city that uh, music people came to, the, all the A&R guys from the record labels and the critics. And that's where you went to see hot new acts coming or old acts like the Everly Brothers and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, So when we started playing there, people were coming to see us. Like Ricky Nelson came every night. And then there would be Waylon Jennings, uh, George Harrison. Um, You know, all these music people were, you know, Henley and Fry and Jackson, those people, they were there, you know, every night. And actually, uh, you know, Glenn Fry and J.D. South there actually opened a few shows for us at the Troubadour. And uh, our our main opening act was uh, Steve Martin. Wow. Which is... (laughs) Yeah. A fun, a fun app to have. Um, so, you know, there was a lot, you know, it was pretty obvious what was going on because everyone was coming to see what we were doing. So we knew we were going to have an impact, and we're having an impact on impact on the music scene in Los Angeles.
0: Well, jump back to Steve Martin for, for a minute because you're talking about the 60s. I mean, he didn't really break, uh, you know, nationally until, I guess, Saturday Night Live and, and you know, right around that time. And that's like seventy, you 74, 75. And, and then he became just a superstar. What was your first impression of Steve Martin? I know he started out as a writer and everything else, and he's quite a musician himself, actually. He's a wonderful banjo player. What was your impression of Steve Martin when you first met him?
1: Yeah, uh... Well, you know, he did magic tricks, told jokes, and, and played banjo, which was, you know, kind of interesting. But, um, you know, th- that whole time, it, you know, at that time, I was pretty much what you're describing. I, I only played steel guitar. Well, I played steel guitar, banjo, mandolin, and, uh, and stuff like that. And uh, through the years, I evolved from just being a backup guy who played, you know, the instruments behind the singers and writers, to, um, in 1978, having a song called Crazy Love, which was Poco's first number one song, Billboard Charts' number one yep. song, first song to, you know, hit number one, first song to chart, that album was the first gold and platinum album Poco ever had. And it was, it, the odd thing is that it was it was a guy who, in the beginning of the band, the first, you know, five years of the band at least, uh, only was an instrumentalist. To turn out to be the guy, you know, we had Randy Meisner, Timothy B. Schmidt, uh, Richie Furay, Jimmy Messina, uh, all these guys in the band, and ne- we never had a hit until I wrote and sang a song called Crazy Love, which was which you still hear today, at, you know, at Home Depot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been a it's been a wild ride, and and it, all that Crazy Love really kept Poco alive from '78 until today. If it weren't for Crazy Love, the band would have dissolved in in 1978. And then full circle, I was the, you know, the guy who didn't sing, who only played guitars, didn't sing and write, has the first hit, huge hit for Poco. And now, you know, 50 years later, this next year, 18 is the 50 year anniversary. I've got, I've just released my first solo record. I've only done Poco records for 50 years. Now I have a a solo record called Waiting for the Sun that I'm really, really excited about. And uh, I can't wait for people to hear
0: well, let me remind folks once again of who they're listening to: Rusty Young, from the band Poco. But uh, his first solo record here is uh, is out, and people can get it. Frank McKay here with Rusty Young of Poco. Let's talk about the the new record, and let's talk about the genesis. Why, after all this time, you decided, hey, you know what? Let me put out something. I mean, was it uh, was it a creative? Um, uh, outlet was it just you were bursting from all kinds of uh, material um uh, you, you know give me give me an idea and give us an idea of how this all started
1: well I, you know a couple of years ago about two years ago i i thought well you know it's really time for me to retire i have a beautiful place here in, in missouri in the like i said in the mark twain national forest and i love being here and i love spending more time here than i get to and I thought, you know, maybe it's time for me to slow down and just, you know, I'll do a few shows. I'll do some fun Poco shows and go out and play with my friends, you know, like Jimmy Messina and Richie Pure and Craig Fuller from Pure Prairie League. and, um, You know, other folks that asked me to come out and sit in with them and sing and, and play guitar. And uh, I was actually doing that. I was slowing down, just doing a few shows. And uh, Jimmy Messina called and said, I've got some concerts in, on the coast in L.A. and California. And uh, I'd love for you to come out and uh, sit in with me. And I, and I said, sure, that's exactly really what I wanted to do. So I, I went out to LA and we had a set of, I don't know, half a dozen concerts together. And that one of them, this, uh, after the show's over, this guy comes up to me and he s- introduces himself. He says, you know, hi, I'm Kurt Pesach. And uh, I have a label called Blue La Lawn. Have you ever considered doing a solo record? And I really, I, you know, in the 70s, I had offers and I, I really wanted to work on Poco and keep that going and not go solo. And, uh, but at this time, I just, I I started thinking, well, maybe it's the right time because everyone I played with has done solo records from Jim Messina to uh, Randy Meisner and Tim Schmidt and Richie Ferre and Paul Cotton. They've all done solo records, but I never have. And, and I thought what an interesting challenge that is. And, uh, so, I went home and I wrote a couple of songs, and I talked to Kurt and a couple of my friends that are on the Blue On label, uh, Jerry Beckley, you know, from America, yeah. and uh, um, uh, 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 the guy that wrote Peaceful Easy Feeling, <laughs> whose name escapes me at yeah, this point. Yeah, I know
0: who you're talking about. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, Jack Timpson. And, uh, you know, I talked to both those guys, and they love the label. And so I, I said, what, you know, I've got a couple of songs. Let me finish this up, and we'll go in and record. And and uh, it, it's part of part of my legacy is going to be this record that uh, we just released called Waiting for the Sun. And we recorded. Then we went, which is really exciting. We went to uh, the Cash Cabin in Hendersonville, Tennessee, which is Johnny Cash's old little, you know, one room basically cabin that uh, was on his is on his property that he had you know, forever, and where he recorded his last couple of albums. And uh, it's a beautiful studio out in the woods where you, no one bothers you. It's on all its private property. And it, it's just so soulful a place. Uh, it was impossible not to make a, a great record. And it was a great experience. This whole process has been really, really uh, an awesome experience for me. I loved the label. We had a great time recording it we're out there touring like crazy behind it and having a great time doing that as well. So, you know, life is good.
0: Well, as interesting uh, as all of that is, I'm, I'm curious to, I'm curious to know, you know about the song selection. I know you wrote some new songs. Did you dig back? Uh, have you had anything that you've been working on for years and it just never fit anywhere, and and you used it for this? Uh, how far back does any of the writing go? Is it all fresh stuff, or is it uh, anything that you've been working on and kind of has been dormant for a while?
1: Well, basically, I started writing and here at the cabin. And what my what I did for a year was I would get up at about four in the morning when it was dark. And I would grab my guitar, my legal pad and pen, and a cup of coffee, and I'd go to my studio, which has these windows that overlook the forest, and I'd start playing. And it'd be dark, and I'd watch as the sun came up. And it was so inspiring, and that's why the uh, title tune to the album is called Waiting for the Sun. That song explains the whole writing process that I went through working on this project. And basically, over the year, I, I wrote about 20 songs and chose 10, there's one song that's a couple years old. The only one that isn't, wasn't written at that point is a song called Sarah's Song. It's a song that's real special to me. That uh, when my daughter, my only daughter, got married about two years ago, she said, "Dad, would you sing at my wedding for the first dance?" And I said, "Sure." And like an idiot, I said, "Why don't I write you a song?" <laughs> and uh, so I, I did. It was it was not the easiest thing I've ever done, but I wrote a song called Sarah's Song, um, and that's. And I sang it at her wedding, and that's on the new CD, and it's really a neat song. I, I'm really proud of it, and it's really touching. And uh, now people are starting to use it at, uh, at weddings, which is really, really cool to me. Yeah. And uh, that's the only song that's a carryover, and it, it was a little bit older than the rest of the stuff, which is all written for this project downstairs in the studio.
0: Yeah, again, uh, fascinating to uh, to talk to somebody Who hasn't uh, done a solo album And then after 50 years of being in Poco Rusty Young uh, just released Waiting for the Sun We want everyone to go out and buy that And uh, I'm sure you can get it uh, just by Googling it, right? And you could probably Amazon and things like that But I'll let him say it Frank McKay here with Rusty Young Hey, Rusty, before we continue Where can people get the record? How can they order it? Is there a website you can give us? Sure, they can
1: go to Blue Alon. It's B L U E E L A N. Their their website and pick it up. And I think if you go there, they have little extra things that they send you when you order it. And it's available in vinyl too, a CD and vinyl. And uh, but you can also all the regular places, iTunes, you know, Amazon, Spotify. Um, it, it's available everywhere, so it's not hard to find if you if you are looking for it.
0: By the way, we'd be remiss we'd be remiss not to uh, not to uh, mention it's your wife's birthday. And I know I'm interrupting your your birthday <laughs> celebration. There, uh, happy, happy birthday birth. to your wife. <laughs> happy birthday to Mary. Really. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we uh, we got a, about a minute before the break. Do we have you for a second quick segment? Sure. Frank McKay here once again. Rusty Young is our very special guest, and you know him from Poco. Uh, number one hit with Crazy Love. Back in, what What did you say, 1978, 1977? When, when was Crazy Love? 79 is
1: 70.
0: when it went number one. Wow, number one. That song comes out and it uh, certainly changes your life. And with everything that went on before that, everything that went on before that, um, uh, you, know, you, you would have thought that there would have been a gold record in there but I, I guess not right i mean geez all that time and you didn't have a gold record and, and all of a sudden this uh, this comes out of uh, left field when we come back i want to ask you about that i want to ask you where were you when you found out that the song is number one was it uh, was it believable after all of those years after you know a decade or more of uh, of kind of i don't know struggling chart struggling anyway mm-hmm. and uh, producing all types of great musicians but not the big hits that's uh that's an and an interesting take also is uh, is the stick that's involved we're coming right up on a break rusty young give the website one more time the name of the album is waiting for the sun rusty quick the website one more time before we break
1: there's there's blue on which is the label B L U E E L A N, and amazon spotify and itunes it's it's all there and and probably your local if you have a local store you you might find it there
0: Rusty Young once again is our very special guest. We'll take a quick break. Waiting for the Sun is the name of a new album. Uh, Rusty Young of Poco fame is our very special guest. When we come back, Frank McKay signing off for a moment, and we'll be back with Breaking it down with Frank McKay. This is 103.9 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone back to Breaking it down. Frank McKay here. More importantly. From Poco, the band Poco, Rusty Young is our very special guest, and uh, Crazy Love in 1979 became a number one hit, and uh, gold and platinum record and everything else, but uh, the, the band had such an impact on uh, and the music society at that particular time, and, and the interaction between Eagles, uh, the Eagles, and, and Loggins and Messina, and everything else got, it started here uh, with Poco and, and Rusty uh, instrumentalist originally, but then uh, became the uh, front man. Certainly recognizable front man when Crazy Love hit number one in 1979. Hey, Rusty, welcome back. Hey, Craig, it's good to be back. Well, the name of the new album is Waiting for the Sun. But let's do a little bit of the history of Poco. And and you know, you said, and and again, it's kind of a weird place to start. You know, after years of of uh, trot uh, struggles to uh, to start in 1979, but um when 1979 came along the song crazy love comes out and you hear that it's a hit, you hear that it's number one, uh, it's going gold. I mean, where are you when you recognize that's happening? Are you on tour? Are you home? Does your management call and say, Hey, guess what? We just got added to this many. St-. What happens when you find out crazy love is just taking off?
1: Well, you know, uh- Back in those days, you would watch the charts. You you know, they had uh, you'd go into where the label was, and they would show you page after page of these magazines that showed which stations were playing it and where it was going and how. So, you know, it's never really a surprise. Uh, The greatest thrill was getting in my car when I lived in L.A. and I'm going down to the store, and it it came on the radio in my car, and I hadn't heard a Poco song except on AM radio, um, FM radio, not AM radio, and to hear it on uh, AM radio was really. Quite a thrill, but you know, even though we hadn't had a hit, Poco was uh, hugely successful through the 70s. You know, we were playing tons of shows, and we were we were very very successful on FM radio, but we weren't very successful on AM radio, and that's where hit singles came from back in those days. So, um, and we almost didn't need to have a a hit on AM radio. because we were so successful on the on the other format and playing concerts, we were a huge concert draw, and uh, you know we were we were doing very well. And if Crazy Love had never come along, the band probably couldn't have kept going. But uh, but it would have gone down as a very successful band. I mean, you know, the history. When I look back on what I've experienced over these years, I mean, we played with Janet Joplin, played with her right before the end, her end anyway. Um, you know, and and uh, got. To interact with her, and uh, I, I have a book that I'm I'm going to finish as soon as this little part of my life is over. Uh, it, it's it's written and it, it talks about you know hanging with with uh, Janis, and you know we played with Hendrix and Clapton, you know, and, and and Elton John was an opening act, and Ricky Nelson was a really good friend of mine, and uh, you know stories of I have stories about you know. Uh, uh, Keith, the drummer in The Who, you know, Keith uh, Keith uh, Moon. Yep. Yeah, Keith Moon, a really interesting story about Keith. You know, and back in the 70s, people hung out. Like when we toured with Yes, you know, we we would all be at the same hotel and we'd all hang out. There wasn't the kind of uh, security and, uh, you know, isolation between the artists that there is today. Um, and so I've got a lot of really great stories. I live, you know, had a really great life at the Atlanta Pop Festival, you know, like three, 400,000 people, uh, Carnegie Hall, you know, the Olympia in Paris, uh, you know, all, all over the world. I played all over the world and I never thought as a kid playing a steel guitar in little bars in Colorado that I would ever be on the stage at Carnegie Hall. And, and yet, you know, we did that. We played Shea Stadium. Um, and the history is just so the experiences I have had, are so rich. It's, it's really uh, quite, it's been quite a life. And uh, for this solo album, you know, to cap it off, for this to be the capper, is uh, is truly magical for me.
0: Who did you play Shea Stadium with?
1: It was uh, called the Freedom Festival, and it was with everyone that you can possibly mention. Uh, the headliners that closed the show were Creedence Clearwater, who we, who we were on tour with, and Steppenwolf, and... Uh, Everyone else you can possibly think of was on the bill on that bill. I think it might have been two days at Shea Stadium, um, but not, you know I'm not yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, that's it's been a long time. Yeah, no. You just mentioned a lot of uh, household names there, and everyone from Clapton uh, to um, Hendrix and and Joplin and and Elton John. I, I don't know, uh, like how into the uh, the psychology of success or whatever that that you. Uh, that you would be into or any of the guys would be into but do you recognize any of uh, a common trait among these people and, and again you played with so many you know you've had your great success but it, you played with Jim Messina who had you know a hell of a career uh, Timothy B uh, Schmidt uh, went on to Eagles fame and everything else but you played with all of these people do you notice any uh, common thread between them I mean is there is is it the type of thing you would have noticed or you're just kind of hanging out and and doing your thing
1: well, you know, no steady rule. I mean, Timothy B. is just a really sweet guy. And, uh, you know, there are those people like him and Vince Gill. They're, you know, they're just great people. But there's one thing I noticed about some people, like uh, you, were, you were mentioning um, Steve Martin. Steve Martin, uh, back when he was opening for us and was, you know, just a writer for the Smothers Brothers, had the most self-confidence of anyone I've met maybe ever. He knew he was going to be he was convinced he was going to be a huge star and he let you know that and uh he had ultimate confidence in himself and i and i think that's important john henley was the same way when john henley was just sitting at the bar at the troubadour and was a nobody he gave off this you know he let you know that someday he was going to be uh more famous than you are (laughs) and you know those guys had such self-belief that I, and I think that's really important, but I think they, a lot of people say, you know, what advice would you give to someone just starting off? And I think that perseverance, you know, you're, you're going to get beat down, but, you, you know, you can't let that get to you. Believing in yourself, you know, having that self-confidence, believing that, that you are going to do it um, is, is really, really important. And I've seen so many people who've gone on to huge success who, when they were nobody, had the confidence that they were going to be somebody and that they were somebody. And so I, I think that's one thing I've noticed from a lot of people, a lot of the, you know, the Elton's in that, is that they had the confidence that they were special. <laughs> and
0: uh, and they, they went on to prove that's true. Yeah, no, wonderful. Uh, again, Rusty Young is our very special guest. Frank McKay here. Uh, the name of the new album is Waiting for the Sun. You can get it on everywhere, iTunes and everywhere else, and the, the label, you can get it through the label. But it's his first solo album after almost 50 years with Poco and many Poco records but uh, but waiting for the Sun is Rusty Young's first solo effort Frank McKay here with Rusty and we're talking about uh, Poco and we're talking about I guess the music business in general success in 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 general you mentioned all of these different people that, that you've played with, and you mentioned some traits that they have. Who in your band, who in Poco, was uh, like the manager within the, the band? Was there anybody in there? Was it was it Richie? Was it Jim? Was it yourself? Was there anybody in the band that was kind of uh, making plans and maneuvering and strategizing? Uh, who would have been that person in the band?
1: There, I don't know that there was anyone like that. I mean, Jimmy's a really smart guy, and he's managed his career really well. Um, you know, I think Randy Meisner, our first bass player who founded the, the Eagles, um, you know, he's he's a, he's a smart guy. And, and, and Timothy B is really sweet. And, you know, there have been great guys going through the band. I don't think anyone really sat down and had a, a plan for where things are going. But, you know, Poco is really special in one thing. Oh, well, in several things. But one of the things is that I can't think of another band, American band, that it's had the kind of impact on American music that Pocos had, uh, and people probably don't really recognize it. But in that same band that started off playing the troubadour, uh, you know, in 1969, you had uh, you had Richie Fure, who's you know Buffalo Springfield and Southern Hillman Furey and all the things that he's done. You know, hugely Im- big impact on the world of music with the Buffalo Springfield. Then you had Jimmy Messina. Went on to do Logs of Messina that was hugely successful, you know, a great act. And then Randy Meisner, who left the band to start the Eagles. And then Timothy B. Schmidt, who took Randy's place in the Eagles. And then you have me, who, you know, had huge success with Poco at the, by the end of the 70s. And, you know, it just, one other band has had Buffalo Springfield, Eagles, Los of Messina, and Poco? You know, four. Really impactful acts all come from the same band in 1969. You know, Aerosmith can't do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, n- nobody really. It's can awesome, either. but yeah, it, right. There's, there's no doubt. It's, it's a different type of, uh, of dynamic when you start looking at bands that were breeding grounds for whole scenes and whole, um, you know, Randy Meisner. You mentioned him uh, being the founding member of, uh, or a founding member of the Eagles. If you think of what and this is what I meant by that tree, you know that Poco tree. if uh, if you spread out from there and did the six degrees of separation with uh, with Henley and Glenn Fry and all of those, Joe Walsh and everybody that came from that band, I, you know w- without Poco, I'm not sure the Eagles are what they are. And I think Randy Meisner had a uh, had a huge impact. On on uh, the Eagles, uh, you know certainly you know as a founding member and everything else. Uh, tell me about Randy. Tell me about when he started the Eagles. Were you in touch with him while he was doing that? Was it a was it a bad split or, or was it a uh, it was a friendly thing? He just left Poco and he went to, to the Eagles. What was uh, what was the take on that? What was your take on that?
1: Well, I, I've known Randy since high school. Um, you know, he lived in he grew up in Nebraska, but there's not much of a music scene there, so he would come down to Denver. And he played in a local bands in Denver, the same as I did, and so I've, I've known him and really wanted to be in a band with Randy ever since the first time I met him. I, I love his voice and I just him as a person. He and I are really great friends. And uh, he le- he left the band because he had differences with Richie Furay, but um, you know, and so did Jim Messina. Uh, left the band because he had differences with Richie. Um, it was, uh, you know, when he left and we stayed in contact when he started the Eagles, I was there. I, I, was, I went to breakfast at DuPars in the Valley in Los Angeles one morning. And sitting in a booth was Don, uh, Don Henley, uh, Glenn Fry, Randy, and Bernie Ledden. And as uh, so I walked by. I said, hey, guys. I knew that because they'd been playing uh, with Linda Ronson. I knew that they wanted to start a band. And I said, well, we're starting our band and we're going to call ourselves the Eagles. And I remember thinking, well, that's a pretty good name. Um, and so, I, you know, I stayed in touch with Randy, and we did a reunion record called Legacy in, in 1988 uh, with Randy and Jimmy and Richie and, and I. And uh, so, you know, we've kept in touch. I just had dinner, uh, actually, with him uh, about a month ago in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Randy's, and, and we stay in touch. And uh, I'm thrilled that when he left our band, I mean, it was, you know, he left our band for the Eagles. Come on. <laughs> I, I would have I would have left, too. And uh, (laughs) Timothy would have as well, for sure. Uh, So, you know, he's, he's a great guy, a unique talent, and I'm glad to call him friend.
0: Now, what was Henley doing right before that? Uh, Linda Ronstadt, right? He was uh, he was uh, playing with Linda Ronstadt. But before that, did he have any kind of name? I know you mentioned that he was in the Troubadour, and you could see, you know, the confidence coming out of him, and and you know he had a presence and everything else. What was he doing when you saw him as a nobody? What was Don Henley uh, doing when you saw him sitting there? Uh, what was what was his project?
1: Uh, he actually was in a band, and like right now, I can't remember the name of the band. But he was in a yeah, and a band that was playing at the Whiskey when we were playing at the Troubadour. Um, and uh, like I say, it was a, a band from Texas. It was like their local band from Texas came to L.A. to make it famous. And uh, it, uh, it it didn't work out until he got with Glenn
0: yeah and then you know it certainly did work out frank mckay here with rusty young name of the album once again is waiting for the sun that's the new solo album the only well the first solo album i should say from pedal uh, steel legend rusty young and uh, from the band poco Number one hit back in uh, nineteen seventy nine, Crazy Love, and things all changed there. But uh, let's do a little bit. You know, we did a little bit of your history, and and we've been touching on Poco history. But uh, what it, if you can start from the beginning with Poco? How did Poco get it uh, get get it all together? How did it all start? And when did you, um, uh, you know, I guess officially call yourselves that? Uh, you know, under that title. Uh, when did it all happen?
1: Well, it started at the. Uh the end of 67 beginning of 68 when uh, i went to los angeles i was invited to play on the buffalo springfield's last time around record and uh, that's when i met uh, jim Messina and richie Furay. and uh, that's at the time the well the buffalo springfield was really broken up at that point and uh, jimmy and richie and i got along really well and we started talking about forming a band that used country music instruments as the palette is the color behind a, a rock and roll band and uh, so that's when we went down the road of putting Poco together, and uh, it was you know it took uh, almost a year from that session before we had the band together with Randy Meisner, George Grantham, who is a drummer friend of mine from Colorado. Randy was a friend of mine from from Colorado. Uh, Jimmy Ritchie and me.
0: And what about as far as a uh, you know a game plan after that? I mean, was, was it uh, uh, bar gigs? Was it a record straight into the studio? Uh, what did you do as soon as you were uh, formulated?
1: Well, Richie had a following because of the Buffalo Springfield, and he also had a record deal with Atlantic. So some shenanigans went on, and uh, uh, we were playing the the, the Troubadour. Um, You know, we were kind of like the house band there for a while, and all these A&R guys from different labels were coming to see us. And, uh, you know, we got offers from about three or four different labels uh, to make a record for them, and we chose Epic. And uh, so as the story goes, uh, Graham Nash was on Epic, and... uh, Clive Davis, who is the head of CBS and Epic, traded uh, Graham, Graham Nash for Richie Furet, who was on Atlantic, so that Crosby, Stills, and Nash could be on Atlantic, and then we could be free to do um, our record on Epic. And that's how it got started.
0: So you, you walked into a situation that was pretty, you know, that, that was a pretty hot situation, and Richie was the, uh, was the focal point, right? He was a signed artist, and you weren't at that point, right? And the other guys weren't?
1: Right yeah it was if it weren't for Richie the band never would have got signed Richie was really the uh you know what what got Poco going and uh, you know through the first 5 years was really really the heart of the band and uh you know without without Richie it, it just would never have happened and I'm not sure the whole country rock thing would have happened without Richie
0: you know I agree with you on that, and like I said, we've had him on a couple of times. I you know I respect Richie a, a lot, but it sounds like you know there's a, there's a strong personality that I wouldn't have thought about it uh, until you mentioned that uh, you know that Randy and uh, you know had conflict with him, and uh, I, I, I guess Jim Messina too had had conflicts. And bands fight and families fight, but I, I guess uh, you know starting out, uh, Richie probably saw it as his band, right? He saw himself as the leader, as the uh, uh, as the focal point. Is that correct? Oh, he—he
1: he clearly was. It was clearly Richie's band the first five years, and he—he he made the calls. You know, it was his decision, and uh, whether they were good decisions or bad decisions, you know, time—time time has told. <laughs> because you know, because Jimmy and Randy were actually better off, you know, leaving the band and doing what they did. Um, and, you know, Richie had—he had a focus and uh, he had an idea, and uh, you know, it was important to him to to make that happen. And. You know I think he I think he liked Timothy B. Schmidt more than he liked Randy Meiser being in the band, and so I think when it changed from Randy to Timothy, I think that you know that Richie was that was a move that he really wanted to make. And, uh, you know, who can, who can, I mean, they're both great musicians and bass players, and I don't think you can go wrong with
0: either one of them, you know? No, uh, a lot of talent there, including uh, our guest, Rusty Young, and the name of his uh, new solo album is Waiting for the Sun, Rusty Young. Uh, you know him from Poco, 50 years with Poco, almost 50 years with Poco, Frank McKay here with uh, with Rusty. we got a couple minutes left. I, let me let me ask you, looking back, I mean, you got 50 years, I'm sure there were opportunities I'm sure there were were different routes that uh, that not only the band could have taken but you could have taken um, yourself personally is uh, is there anything that you could remember in all of those years, and, and let's say prior to Crazy Love, that were offered to you that you either turned down or you couldn't do because of conflicts, that, you know, you kind of look back and scratch your head and said, you know, maybe I should have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have. Uh, was it clear cut or were there a lot of uh, decisions to be made there that you can look back and and, and question?
1: Well, you know, there was one fateful day and it, uh, it was about, well, it was when Richie left Poco after, you know, he'd been in the band about five years Uh, We all flew, we lived in Colorado, we flew out to Los Angeles to have a meeting with David Geffen, who was managing us at the time. And uh, we went to his office, and he called Richie, you know, into his main office and closed the door, and and then came out. And sitting on the couch was uh, Timothy B. Schmidt, Paul Cotton, me, and our drummer, George Grantham. And uh, David Geffen came out and said, okay, Richie's quitting the band, which at the time was a pretty big deal. And, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that would, including David Geffen, thought that would be the end of Poco. And uh, he started at the front of the couch, and he looked at Timothy B., and he said, listen now, Tim, you, you write songs and you sing, don't you? And he said, uh, and Timothy said yes, and, and uh, Geffen said, well, don't worry. Richie's leaving, but you're going to be just fine. Then he went to Paul, and he said the same thing. You write songs and you sing, don't you? And Paul said yes, and he said, don't worry. Richie's leaving the band, but your career is okay. You will be just fine. And then he looked at me, and at the time I was on the cover of Guitar Player magazine, I think something no other steel player has done even to this day, been on the cover of guitar player. Uh, I was, I was in the hall of fame. You know, I was in these, you know, things with Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and me, you know, in these gallery of the greats kind of deals. And uh, I was pretty much at the top of my game as a, as an instrumentalist. And he, as good as you could do. And he looked at me and he said, "Now you don't sing and you don't write songs, do you? You play guitar. I said, yes. And he said, you're in trouble. Oh man. And that's, That's the day I realized that, you know, being the best I could be on pedal steel guitar really didn't have a lot of meaning in the world of music. Uh, The guys that are important are the guys who write songs and the guys who sing songs. And so that day, I decided I was going to be a singer-songwriter, and that laid the foundation for what became, I mean, I wrote Rosa Cimarron, which is the, you know, about a year after that, which is the uh, most recorded Poco song of anything that we've ever recorded, more than Crazy Love, more than Good Feeling to Know, more than Call It Love, which was our hit in the 80s. Um, Rosa Cimarron is, is a really important song in the history of Poco, and, then I, and I wrote Crazy Love, and... None of that would have happened if Richie hadn't left the band, and if David Geffen hadn't confronted me and said and told me that, you know, virtually that if you're not a singer songwriter, um, you, you don't matter in the music business. Wow. And uh, that changed my life. That day I went from being an instrumentalist to working on being a singer songwriter, which thankfully, you know, uh, I was I, I could do. And I had great teachers, Richie, and all the people I were I was around back in those days. Uh, you know, really taught me, you know, what to do in the studio and how to.